Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Politically Direct, and Counterspin. I mean, how often have we done this? We really must have these conservatives and Republicans on the ropes. Ladies and gentlemen... We got her. <laughs> we got her. You might be wondering, what, what would happen? Her? What do you mean? Like Condoleezza Rice stepped down? Who? <laughs> Laura Bush? <laughs> we actually we actually have her in the office you know, today in the studio. You know, first of all, I don't even I, I need to hear her before I can actually do it. <laughs> but oh I don't God. think but I don't think making fun of my professional demise should be the open to a show like it's a big comedy bit. Ladies and gentlemen, Rita Cosby in studio with us here. Do you think that do you think that they'll replace oh, me? For sure do you think they'll well. keep that empty seat there for a while? <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Do that again, Jack. Do you think that do you think that they'll replace me? For sure, do you think they'll keep that empty seat there for a while? <laughs> <laughs> All right. For those of you who, have, who haven't heard the great news. Who somehow missed this incredibly important news story. Rita Cosby's show on MSNBC has been canceled. And what do you make? Smart move or a little too close for comfort? Definitely a smart move. <laughs> if I was you, I'd say it's a little too close for comfort, though. Rita, Rita, um, tell us, what, what do you have planned next for everyone? Because, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of sad people here today. I'm thinking I'll go back to Fox News. They'll hire anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, man. What did you think? You know, you and I were laughing about it right before the show. <laughs> we were laughing about it before the show, just a couple of guys. Rita, this must be a really hard time for you. How do you feel about this? I'm very upset about it. I'm very, very profoundly upset. Me and Star Jones, we're going to go out. We're talking about how we got screwed by people like Barbara Walters and I don't even. And Dan Abrams. Dan oh, Abrams. Totally. I'm an anchor with him. And he stabs me in the back in my bikini. Can you. <laughs> you know what, Dan he Abrams? He choked sure. me with my own bikini. Can you give us some insight as to why they've, they've, they've made this troubling and, and, and disturbing decision today. Well, they seem to, something about the fact that nobody watched my show. I don't see why that's relevant. <laughs> Ratings don't mean anything. Ratings are not important. And the key demos of husky women over the age of 40, <laughs> I was getting an 18 share. <laughs> I was number seven in that category. <laughs> I don't know why they fired me. I'll strangle you with your own bikini right now. What are you doing with yourself today to console? <laughs> what would Rita Cosby do to console herself? Well, as I said, I'm going to go look at Star Jones, and I'm going to say it could be worse. I could be Star Jones. <laughs> I don't know. Did she even laugh like that? Who knows? I think so. I think yeah. something along those lines. <laughs> uh... Uh, Jerry, yeah. you got any more clips from Rita? Was this an unexpected decision, or have we you have known you, for a while? We have actual Rita Cosby here. Wasted no time in at least temporarily replacing me. Is she, do you not have her head, your headset on? No wonder you're not getting any of this. <laughs> Dude, I, I can hear Rita Cosby. Okay. But right. when I hear Rita Cosby, it just makes me want to hear Ben do Rita Cosby more. Let's do one, then the other. And let's see, look, you play along at home and in your cars. Can you tell which one's the real Rita Cosby? Choice A. How do you make that? Okay, what do you think of that? Choice B. How do you make that? What do you think of that? Answer me! <laughs> you know what? I mean, if I wasn't watching on the youngturks.com slash in the same room with you, I'm not sure I could tell. 
I'm not sure I could tell. Yeah, what did you think? You know, you and I were laughing about it right before the show. <laughs> ben, though, uh, definitely uh, more strikingly handsome than, than the Miss Cosby. <laughs> All right, let's get real here. I, I want to bring this back down to you know to a serious level here, because this is this is not a laughing matter. Somebody's lost their job and their livelihood. We're you know taking food off of their kids' table. Does she have kids? Who knows? Uh, I would imagine that that might be a little difficult. But all right, I'm going <laughs> to leave that be. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway, look, I wouldn't make fun of Rita Cosby unless she'd made fun of herself. When the world is falling apart, when people are dying in Iraq, and there's stories like the Supreme Court of the United States deciding that the military tribunals ordered by the Bush administration are unconstitutional, a rebuke to the Bush administration, we open with stories about cute blonde girls getting straggled with their own bikini. <laughs> I did this to myself. <laughs> no, you, you had it coming. I, I'll tell you, you had that. it coming. Rita, I'm curious, what do you sound like during sex? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not comfortable doing that. I'm not comfortable talking about that with Jill. With you, <laughs> That's why. <laughs> oh, Jesus, man. I you know really, what? I, I really enjoy autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, I, I probably don't want to uh, hear that, but come to think of it, man, that would be a hoot. I didn't hear that. Come on, I'm almost there. Come on, a little more. Make me down. I can't wait to have sex with you, but first the latest on Natalie Holloway. <laughs> Call me Natalie. Uh. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Uh, you know, you knew we were going to take it over the top. You knew the guy who was going to do it was me. So let's get real. Okay, now, to be getting serious here, uh, and I, I, this is important that we get serious on this story, uh, we got Rita Cosby fired. Uh, I Look, I, uh, I don't want to take credit for it, uh, but I'm forced to. What could I do? Our hand is forced. Uh, we did a little Rita Cosby impersonation. We did send around the Internet a little bit, get carried on a number of blogs. Uh, we did write a little story about how Rita Cosby was doing absolute nonsense on her show. Uh, my understanding is the people at NBC did read that story, and, and lo and behold, look at that, Rita Cosby, uh, her show's canceled. So, you know, I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying. You know, uh, by the way, as far as, uh, I have no interest in anyone losing their job, livelihood, really, no one who's not, and Rita Cosby is not evil. And Rita Cosby does far less damage than Chris Matthews, for example. Mm-hmm. She's just silly. She's just what's ro- she is symbolic of what's wrong with local. It was wrong with no with cable news. If everybody else did their job, then there could be a show like Rita Cosby, and we'd make fun of it, but it wouldn't be a big deal. It I agree completely. Uh, but she's still going to stay on at the network. She's going to she's going to host a, a series of Rita Cosby specials, the doc- Rita Cosby documentary unit. <laughs> <laughs> the Rita Cosby <laughs> documentary unit. She'll be the primary anchor of MSNBC Investigates, a taped documentary program that will air uh, at uh, 10 and 11 p.m. So she's still around. She's just not going to do the nonsense show anymore. I believe the first documentary will be Missing Blondes in the Caribbean. All seven of them. Missing Blondes from the anchor desk. What does she talk about? Uh, 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 wait a minute. 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 So finally she can cover yeah, sure. one missing blonde yeah. <laughs> and say, I found her. Day eight, where is Rita? I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> what does Rita talk about if there are no missing blinds that have been murdered? I'll be interested to see how she does uh, regular uh, documentaries. You know, it's funny because she actually, in that spat with Olbermann, which was revealing that, you know, part of the, you know, the criticism of Olbermann at ESPN and the first time at MSNBC is that he's very difficult to get along with. I don't know whether it's true. I, uh, the people who I know who know him 
uh, say he's very nice, you know, mm-hmm. and, and but but they don't work with him on a regular basis. They encounter him, and he's very respectful and nice, and and he's clearly an incredibly bright guy. I mean, I listen to him most days now on the on ESPN Radio with Dan Patrick. He's on for an hour together. They are every day, and it's just it's a reminder of how great sports are. They're great together. They're just mm-hmm. great together. They're 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 well, they're like us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, they're really they're they're but. Uh, you know, but he can't be writing emails to fans about how dumb Rita Cosby is. That's just not, it's not pleasant. Uh, but his response to that, he said about Rita Cosby, this was about a month, uh, three weeks ago. He said, uh, um, uh, she's she's nice, but dumb as a post or dumb as a rock. And, that, and her response was, Keith only got it half right. I'm not that nice. Which isn't actually, it's a funny thing. It's a nice response. God bless. And, uh, and, and took, the, uh, took the high road, too. Bullard is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, and he's a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. He's also the author of a terrific book whose title says it all, Lapdogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush. He joins us now by telephone from New Jersey, where government apparently truly is non-essential. Eric Bullard, welcome to Politically Direct. Thanks for having me. Well, this has been, a, uh, for you, I should suspect, a very interesting week to watch yet again the shell game go on. The administration does something that it doesn't want us to know about, and when the press does its job on those rare occasions, actually the story becomes the fact that maybe the press shouldn't have done its job. Right. Yeah, we've seen this sort of looping movie over and over again. What's different this time is sort of the scale of hysterics that the Bush administration and their supporters and the conservative noise machine have sort of ratcheted up. And we actually have Republicans on the floor of Congress uh, voting on resolutions to condemn uh, the New York Times. But it's all part and parcel. I talk about in my book sort of this love-hate relationship. I mean, the Bush administration hates the press, and the press loves the Bush administration. Love, I think, in the last few months has sort of softened, but for five years you can't argue that there was this sort of titanic shift in the way the press covered the Bush White House. But, Eric, isn't that the definition of an abusive relationship? (laughs) That's spousal abuse. You know, the worse the treatment by the Bush administration, the more the press has begged to be loved and forgiven. Yeah, and they should have seen it coming, and it shouldn't be a surprise. To its credit, I think the New York Times is defending its reporter, and now the you know the New Yorker writes this editorial about how the administration knows that you know the Times didn't hurt national security, and lots of people go on TV and are wringing their hands about the Bush administration is threatening the First Amendment and the free press. That's great. Where were they four, five, three years ago? I mean, this relentless attack on the press was telegraphed from day one with the Bush administration, and the press refused to fight back. And now, again, we've gotten to the point where Congress is voting resolutions to condemn the press. I mean, this is how absurd it is. They should have stood up from the beginning 
even before 9-11, even before the, sort of the patriotic fervor, they should have stood up, and they didn't, and now they're paying the price for it. Eric, I want to cut to the heart of this, because I'm honestly, and no offense meant here, I'm really tired of this conversation. I'm tired mm. of hearing over and over again, and not from you. Yeah. You've made the point, we've had David Brock on this program, he's made the point brilliantly, and, and makes it over and over again on Media Matters. But what I'm tired of is that this seems to be, as you described it, a movie that is looping endlessly. Yeah. And what I'd like to talk about today is what can be done to change the, change the ending of this film or, or get it out of the projector, for God's sakes. What can be done substantively to change the way the press both relates to political institutions and relates to its own sense of itself. I know, and it's so frustrating. And, and when I talk about the book, almost the first, you know, when I go out to uh, speaking engagements, almost the first question is, what do we do? And it's frustrating because I've almost become more frustrated. I mean, I ended working on the book in March. It came out in May. And even in that time frame, I think it's actually gotten worse. I think you're right. And I tried hard in the book to sort of keep the rhetoric down and keep it very fast. Actual, but it's hard for me now to keep the rhetoric down because it's so blatantly bad. But to go back to your question, the one thing so people don't feel helpless is there are success stories. People raising holy hell about issues has worked. Talk radio and the bloggers online have saved stories. I mean, if you just look at the Downing Street memo, I mean, if it wasn't for the ruckus, you know, folks on the left, created that story absolutely would have gone down the memory hole let me stop you it's yeah. part of history but nothing substantive happened as a result of that and again you look oh, at well, in terms of the press coverage exactly yeah. the press was finally forced the so-called mainstream media right. traditional media was forced to report it to some degree although television woefully inadequately right. print to some degree but we talked about this here on air america over and over and over again it had howard dean on talking about it, it had various elected officials right and yet nothing in the way of public policy, and why? I think that the fact that the Downing Street memo eventually had to come out and people had to talk about the mainstream media, I think it was a turning point if you go back and look at the polls in terms of people's perception about how Bush got into the war and his trustworthiness and did he lie us into war and things like that. So I think the story in the end did have an impact with the public and I think it created a real problem for Bush sort of under the radar. Fair point. Maybe in that uh, way it did. But in terms of policy, you're right. I don't think it had a substantive change. But I think people picked up on that. And as Iraq continued to fall apart, I think that's sort of when they began just over a year ago to sort of put two and two together. And now I think that's why you know, a strong majority, or at least a clear majority of Americans think the war was a mistake, uh, we never, never should have gone, and things like that. So some good did come of saving that story. But for every success story, and, and let's even stipulate that the, the Downing Street memos was saved by bloggers and saved by non-traditional media, yeah. but for every success story like that, there are literally hundreds. And you focus, and I, I want to talk about this because I think for those of us who actually spend a lot of time reading the news, we are dinosaurs. We are people, you know, who read the New York Times, read the LA Times. They know, we know, that is not the way of the future. Right. People are getting their news from television, and happily and perhaps encouragingly, a, a lot of young people are getting it from The Daily Show. Fake news. Right. Uh, but uh, having said that, 
television, and you talk about this in the book, you talk about Tim Russert and Meet the Press and the traditional television outlets for news and information, has been just abysmal in terms of this administration. Why has television actually and arguably been the worst of all the media outlets? Well, I think they are sort of the slave to sort of this beltway mentality, the sort of spoken and unspoken guidelines in terms of what you do and don't say. You know, you got to remember, I mean, if you're on TV, you're getting paid a heck of a lot more than the print reporters and the radio and the magazine reporters. You're sort of a celebrity. You're on TV. It's a really good gig. So you're, I think you're even more aware of this is where you go, this is where you don't go. And there were such clear, defined double standards for Bush. I'll give you a quick example from the 2000 campaign. And that's when it started. I mean, this was absolutely when Bush arrived. The Clinton-Gore rules were thrown out, and the mainstream press, particularly the Beltway TV, just completely adopted these new rules. But if you go back to uh, May of 2000, the Boston Globe put a front-page story about how Bush essentially failed to show up for Texas Air National Guard. There was not a single anonymous source. It was just based on his records, his commander saying, you know what, he didn't show up. That was May. Five days later, Chris Matthews sat down with an exclusive hour interview with candidate George Bush and refused to ask him about that story. I mean, Chris Matthews is not dumb. He knows the stories out there. He knows it asks completely legitimate questions. And he chose for 60 minutes not to ask candidate Bush any questions about it. I mean, that's been the mentality. That's been the sort of shrieking double standards. And to answer why TV is worse, I think people pay even closer attention to sort of what the guidelines, you know, if you want to be on TV during Bush, you talk about how authentic he is, how he doesn't pay attention to polls, you know, what a great message this discipline the White House had. If you wanted to get on TV during the Clinton years, you know, you talked about what a phony Clinton and Gore were, everything was political. You could talk about any crazy what-if scenario you wanted. So that's how the game was rigged. But it was so good. We're going to run it in its entirety for you. It's a little over five minutes. We'll come back and talk about it. But it speaks for itself. I mean, buckle up here for what Nora... I mean, get a load of Nora O'Donnell here and the questions she asked Cindy Sheehan. Here it is. Unbelievable. Dictator Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Now she begins a two-month hunger strike to get the American people to join her mission to end the war. Welcome to Hardball, Cindy. Let me let me begin by asking you. You know, Americans may hate the war, but they don't necessarily hate the president. How do you expect to get change by going around the world and trashing the president of the United States? Well, actually, um, I don't hate the president either, and um, I don't trash the president. I trash the president's foreign policy, which is fundamental fundamentally and inherently wrong and immoral. And I don't tell people around the world anything that they don't know. But you called him the biggest terrorist in the world, so you are trashing the president. Well, you know, he says a terrorist is somebody who kills innocent men, women, and children. And there has been over 100,000 innocent men, women, and children killed in Iraq on his orders. Cindy, you have just begun a two-month hunger strike. Isn't this really just more of a publicity stunt? 
Um, no, actually it's not. It's a, a moral re reaction to an immoral war. Um, thousands of people all over the world are joining us, and it, hunger strikes have proven to be effective tools in civil disobedience and changing policy. But do you honestly expect Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld or the President of the United States to say, Cindy Sheehan is going on a hunger strike, and so I'm going to end this war? Well, um, that would be nice, but um, <laughs> what we're trying to do is also awaken consciousness in the United States and around the world to get more people out and active because we know two-thirds of America disapprove of George Bush and his policies in Iraq, but I don't see two-thirds of America out protesting, riding their Congress people and, and changing policy. And nor, quite frankly, do you see members of Congress, and you claim not to be, not be in the fringes, to not be an extremist, and yet what members of Congress support you and your policy? Well, um, really on both sides of the aisle. You know, we have Ron Paul and Walter Jones, who are Republicans, who are outspoken critics of George Bush's policies. We have many on the other side, as such as John Conyers, Charlie Rangel. And in the uh, Senate? In the Senate, well, we would have uh, many supporters in the Senate, Who? too. Who? John Kerry. Um, John Kerry supports an immediate withdrawal from Iraq. Did he tell you that? His, his office is working on starting a withdrawal as soon as possible to have the troops home by the end of the year. He has. I have talked to his office about that, and that's something he's trying to push in the Senate. Well, in fact, the bill that Senator Kerry has proposed right. um, went down in flames in the right. Senate. Well, and actually, yeah, it did. But, yeah. you know, only, you know, in, in Vietnam, there was only a few senators at first, mm -hmm. and then it turned but around. Let me, let me challenge you on this, Cindy, because mm -hmm. what you're calling for is, in fact, an extreme position, because there are very few members of Congress who support immediate withdrawal. You would, if you could, fly a bunch of planes over there, pick up all our troops, and take them home tomorrow, if you could, it was in your power. There is no one in the United States Congress, Democrat, Republic, or Independent, who would do that. Actually, there are many members. There's an out-of-Iraq Congress that has 70 members that are calling for an immediate withdrawal. And we can't fly planes over and pick them all up tomorrow. Right. You know, it would take a few months, and it has to be as safe for our soldiers and as safe for the um, Iraqi people as possible, but it has to be as soon as possible. You speak very passionately about your cause. You lost a son mm -hmm. in Iraq. We honor his service and sacrifice. But you've been traveling the world, Scotland, Spain, Venezuela, Ireland, Australia, Austria. How does that help the cause when, again, you're around the world mm -hmm. trashing the president, calling him a terrorist, calling him worse than Osama bin Laden? How do you honestly expect to affect change with that t those types of remarks? Well, it's really important, too, that, that the people in the world know that there are Americans on their side because um, as anti-Bush sentiment goes up in the world, anti-American sentiment goes up also. And people, I've had hundreds of people around the world tell me, before you, we thought all Americans supported George Bush. And it's important for us, people of different countries in different borders, to reach out to one another, to work to force our leaders to solve problems peacefully. And this is so really important. So why go stand side by side by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela? Why do that? I mean, it sounds like that, would you rather live under Hugo Chavez than George Bush? Um, yes. <laughs> you know, Hugo Chavez is not a dictator like you like you introduced him. He's been democratically elected eight times, and he's not anti-American. Saddam Hussein is democratically elected. Yeah, hold on a second. The, um, he, 
he is not anti-American. He has helped the poor people of America. He has sent aid to New Orleans. He has um, sold heating oil to disadvantaged people in America, in the United States of America, at low cost. And he, his, the people of his country love him. And for us to say that we have some kind of influence over Venezuelan policy is wrong. The people of Venezuela have elected him overwhelmingly eight times, and it's his country, and it's their country, and they should have the leader that they deserve. All right. Cindy Sheehan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Finally, a 2003 University of Maryland study found that Fox News viewers are more likely than average to have misperceptions about the Iraq War. Last week, we were reminded of why that's still true. When Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum announced at a June 21st news conference, quote, we have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, chemical weapons, close quote. The story was quickly shot down. Intelligence officials said the shells were old, degraded, and not the weapons the country had gone to war over. Former Chief U.N. Weapons Inspector David Kay explained to Associated Press that in their degraded state, the shells were, quote, less toxic than most things that Americans have under their kitchen sink, close quote. In a saner political culture, Santorum would have slunk away and the story would have died. But then we have Fox News. In the hands of the Fox News political hacks, the story blossomed and grew for two days. In a June 21st Fox News alert, Anchor John Gibson breathlessly announced, quote, They finally managed to declassify Pentagon information, which shows that, in fact, WMD was found in Iraq, close quote. That same evening, Bill O'Reilly self-effacingly announced, quote, I always knew that Saddam had some sarin mustard gas resin, close quote. Uh, there is no such thing as sarin mustard gas resin. But later still, Fox host Sean Hannity said, quote, The claims that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction at the time of the Iraq War is simply false, close quote. Hannity also asked, should the Democrats apologize? In the following days, most Fox hosts quietly backed away from the story, though without issuing corrections. But Hannity was still going strong on July 5th, chiding newspapers and news networks for not giving the non-story enough attention. Presumably, Hannity's viewers still believe that WMDs have been found in Iraq. Richard Porotsky, he has written a book called The Demigod. It is about how radio hosts can be uh, demagogues 
and uh, and uh, cause a lot of trouble in, in America. Uh, he could be referring to us. We'll get to that in a second. First, you know nothing about radio hosts. Uh, I don't. No. Oh, fascinating. Okay, R- Richard, uh, how are you, man? Fine, gentlemen. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. All right, Richard. Uh, let me get to it. First, uh, you talk about Charles Coughlin. Um, and he's an interesting character. Before we get to the present day, I want to ask you a little bit about him. First, tell us who he is, and, and then tell us, if you could, as quickly as possible, what his impact was. Well, essentially, he was the first electronic-era demagogue. He was the first on radio exploiting the traditional skills and tactics that a demagogue uses, things like name-calling, stacking the deck, all the tricks that we associate with today's demagogues. In fact, in 1939, there was a book written to simply lay out what those tricks are and how they work. And every single trick had an example. And every single example was from a speech by Father Coughlin. That's interesting. And he was a kind of a religious figure? And, and what did he advocate for? Well, essentially, he started out on the radio in the late 1920s. And he was just doing religious stories for children. And periodically, as the Depression worsened, he started to make political comments, and he got more mail, and he got more contributions. And so his talks became more and more political. And finally, at one point, one of then-Governor Roosevelt's cousins told the then-Governor that perhaps he should contact Coughlin, because clearly Coughlin was an enemy of then-President Herbert Hoover, and perhaps he could help Roosevelt. And indeed, uh, Governor Roosevelt and Father Coughlin had a couple of meetings, and throughout the campaign in 1932, Coughlin was a big supporter of Roosevelt. But what did Coughlin advocate? What, like, what was the demagoguery part? What, what did he say that wasn't right? Well, it, it, just about anything that you would, any issue that you want to talk about, he was, he was using these same tricks. He was, he was for example, if, if he stated any opinion, any opinion on any given subject matter, he would say anybody who disagreed with him was an idiot, was a communist, was a fascist. And clearly this was, this was done so that you would feel as though, well, gee, if, if they're against the, the good father with the imprimatur of the Roman Catholic Church behind him, obviously well, I must be against them too. All right, well, that makes sense. So let's get to the present but, uh, it, 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 There's a specific example, for example, and it, it has to do with, with Social Security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dr. Francis Townsend. But he came up with something called the Old Age Revolving Pension Plan. Mm-hmm. It was a fiasco. But the sad part is people were very desperate during the Depression, and they believed in it. They believed that it would help them to take care of their older relatives. They believed that it would actually cure the Depression. And so throughout the country, in every congressional district, there were Townsend clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that Roosevelt moved so quickly on Social Security, something that he didn't even want to touch until his second term, shows you how powerful demagogues like Townsend and Coughlin were because they were pushing this, and Roosevelt was convinced that if he didn't come up with something that sounded very similar to it, but at least was a bit more economically feasible, he and the Congress would have no choice but to enact it into law. 
So it sounds like he helped in that case, though. Well, he helped it if you think that, that putting that kind of pressure on Congress and perhaps forcing them to enact legislation that would have been economically disastrous, if you think that's a help, well, <laughs> well maybe right. it was. There, he did go on after that, though. He had a, a, he had a severe break with the Roosevelt administration, and then he decided that Huey Long should be the next president. So it was a combination of three big demagogues, Francis okay. Townsend, Coughlin, and Long, trying to literally take the, the nomination from Roosevelt. And if they couldn't do that, they were going to run him as an independent. All right, let me uh, understand a couple of things. We're doing it. Richard Perotsky, he wrote the book, The Demigod. It talks about how uh, talk show hosts can be uh, demagogues. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I'm just playing, Richard, by the way. Okay, all right. Now, so let's talk about the present day. I mean, I can rush them ball Bill O'Reilly. I got it, obviously, right? And I'm sure if you went down the manual of, you know, 101 demagoguery, they check off every box in, in that. But you also mentioned, for example, Al Franken in there. Do you think Al Franken uses the same tools? Do you think he's just as dangerous? Do you think it might help to have a balancing effect? What's your thoughts there? I'm really not sure that it's a matter of saying, or it's even helpful to say who is the worst demagogue. Uh, to be honest, if you feel that your arguments are so weak that you have to use these tricks to sell them, then something's wrong. And to be honest, uh, Janine Garofalo, Al Franken, uh, there's a newspaper here back east, Newsday. They had me write a, a piece of analysis about Air America when it went on the air. And I listened fairly carefully, folks, to, to all the personalities that they had. And to be honest, there were times when they decided that reason was not going to carry the day, and they truly demagogued, even Franken. Well, I know I don't. Oh, I don't doubt that they do it at all. But in general, do you still listen? Do you find it as it doesn't? I don't listen to them. I, I barely listen to us. Um, but do you uh, uh, do you think uh, that uh, the sort of personalities and hosts on the left demagogue as much as those on the right, or no? Well, again, I, I don't know that it's, it really makes any difference who does it more or who does it less, makes who's it more effective makes, or not. It makes a difference but, to me. I like being closer to the side of truth, so I'm just curious. What are your thoughts? Yeah, but Well, see, you're, 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 saying, you're asking me to, to, to try and make a definition that there is some such thing as good demagoguery or demagoguery that isn't so bad. No. And the fact of the matter is I can't say that. No, no, I, if I, you're demagoguing something, it's bad. All right, Richard, i got to step in here. Listen, what do you want me to do? You want me to do a show where it's like here are facts A, B, and C. Enjoy. Uh, you know, look, if, I'm going to tell you what's rational. I'm sure if you listen to the show, you would call me a demagogue. I'm positive of it. Now, because you know why? Because if you don't, the rational facts of A, B, and C, if you don't listen to them, and you got a, a guy like Tucker Carlson, like we talked about earlier in the show, and he's not at all rational, and he's talking crazy talk, I'm going to say he's an idiot because he is an idiot. Uh, so, I mean, what do you want me to do? Just lay it out and then just uh, blah, blah. There it well. is. I, I don't think it's so terrible if you say why Tucker Carlson isn't making sense or, or why he isn't being rational or what he's missing. But I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. Um, if, if you think it's a good idea to, to demagogue issues, to, to draw attention, to entertain, or something like that, think about regular wrestling, Greco-Roman style, and think about professional wrestling. 
See, but that's exactly because, right, Richard. Nobody watches Greco-Roman wrestling, and everybody loves WWF. That's, that's quite true. It, as I say, it, it, people listen to, to Rush Limbaugh, too. They, uh, there are probably a lot more people who listen to Rush than listen to Air America and NPR combined. But, so, but the, problem, the problem is, is that the way you want to get information? Is that the way we should discuss serious issues of the day? Richard. I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think with all this heat going on that there's really enough light to truly inform people. You'll get people agitated, you'll get people listening, but you won't educate them, you won't inform them. Well, look, Richard, that's what we're, honestly, that's what we're trying to do, and you might think that Jenk and I, Demi, probably more Jenk, <laughs> that Jenk and I, uh, Demi got, Un- but, unquestionably. unquestionably, but, but, but that said, I mean, I, I honestly, I think you're copping out of answering that question. I understand that people on both sides of the political spectrum will do it. I'm not asking you to say which is worse, which was a more harmful piece of demagoguing. I want to know who does it more, because obviously every host will slip into it. That, but, I mean, if you slip into it in 8% of what you say, you're probably doing far less harm and informing on a far greater scale than somebody who's demagoguing 70% of the time. And I think that's a fair question to ask you. I don't know that I've ever really kept statistics as to, you know, when somebody is actually not demagoguing something and, and when they are. To be honest, most hosts find it easy to to demagogue heavily and then back off a little bit but still demagogue the point. Right. I think what's, what's actually more important in terms of left and right is to try and think in terms of what what is the audience for demagoguery. In other words, when Air America came on the air, it was supposed to be the, the liberal talk show network. It was to reach out to liberals in the same style that Limbaugh and O'Reilly were reaching out to conservatives. And I, I asked the question in Newsday, is there an audience for that? Are there really people on the left who want things simplified, who want their, the people they, uh, they don't agree with to be called idiots? Do they want everything to be in such black and white terms? I don't think so. Well, I think people on the left probably have an understanding that issues can be complex and that they take complex solutions. So That's people on the left are smart and people on the right are idiots. You're demagoguing. No, yeah. no, 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 you're saying <laughs> just, that. I'm you're kidding, I'm that. kidding, I'm kidding. All right, Richard, you sound like a sweet man. You really do. And, you know, I, I trust you to babysit my kids. Uh, <laughs> that being said, I, you know. No, you, you really shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, if, okay. if your kids are in their 20s, I'll take care of them. But other than that, I, I don't want little ones. their stomach. <laughs> okay, now, but all that being said, I, I think you live in, uh, you know, you don't live in fantasy land. It's just that I, I don't think it's realistic. I, I think it's uh, too much to say you live in fantasy land. I, I think you have a good goal, a, 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 you know, a worthy goal, but that's not the world we live in because... Well, wait a minute. Think, what, what is my goal? It, it sounds like you want people to have a rational discourse where they only lay out facts and information. And that's not going to happen. No, okay. no, thank that's, no, I don't. Because, to be honest, I don't know that that's going to to sell in the way that demagoguery does. Right. And, and, and to be honest, we, we live in a free marketplace and people are going to demagogue. What I really want, what I really want is for people to be informed, people, for people to recognize when they're listening to demagoguery. I want yeah. them to understand when they're just excited and emotional about, about an issue and when they really understand it. No. Because there are a lot of people who are incredibly uninformed but terribly excited about issues, and they vote that way. Richard, and that's very scary. Uh, Richard, I, I think, first of all, if you have the time, and I'm sure you're a busy guy, uh, I would love it if you could, in the next month or so, 
listen to a couple of our shows because I would be legitimately curious uh, uh, of your thoughts. Because I, I think, Jenk, that Richard would like us. I mean, I, it's fun to make fun. And there are moments when you definitely demagogue. But, I mean... Ben, but what makes what, you think what, I haven't listened to you guys? I don't know, because you're an American. <laughs> uh, the, uh, no, I'm kidding. We have millions of listeners. Billions. Um, but, no, I just think we... I, I, but I think that's what we're trying. That's why I'm doing it. That we're trying to inform. Look, Richard is not saying that you cannot inform and inform in an entertaining fashion. I think you can inform and inform in an entertaining fashion without demagoguing. If you can't, then we're all gonna, then 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 we're going to fail. No, 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 no. Look, Richard, they're not going to listen unless you entertain them. So the trick isn't. I don't think the answer is. Uh, you know, it, 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 the point isn't to trick people. By, oh, look, entertaining, I'm juggling balls, look at the balls, look at the balls, and I deceive you. The trick is, while I'm entertaining you, let me actually give you a couple of facts you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Uh, I, I think that's that's the right answer, and I don't think you're going to get better than that. Really? Do, do, you, do you want the New York Times to run the comics and the horoscope on the front page? I mean, is, no, that, no, is no. that the kind of entertainment that they need? No. The Times, the Times informs people, and they don't clown around. Mm-hmm. By, the other, by the same token, so does the Wall Street Journal. They don't. They don't have to resort to that. And if you think about it, I mean, think about think about when you were younger and talking to your parents. Did you talk to your parents about important issues? No, yeah, sometimes. Okay. Well, I, I used to talk to my father a lot about these things, and he was a very well-informed man. He read three newspapers a day, two on Sunday. He listened to the radio. He watched TV documentaries and news. He read news magazines. He was very well-informed. I disagreed with my father fairly often. We had very different perspectives. I never thought he was uninformed. I never thought he was anything less than sincere. I thought he was a very intelligent man, and he was. I got you. And, and we had very informative, entertaining, enjoyable talks, and we both learned. And I we never you. raised our voices, and we didn't shout names at each other or anything else. What, so, what kind of a household did you grow up in? Listen, <laughs> since, since well, I'm, I'm pretty old now, so I guess it was quite a while ago. And, and my fear is that parents don't do that with their kids anymore. Well, I got I'm you. Sure listen, you're right. Richard disagrees with me at some point, so he's an idiot. Don't listen. To <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing. I'm playing. Richard Porosky, uh, the, the book is The Demigod. Obviously, has interesting facts uh, in it and an interesting argument in it. God bless. Go forward. If the world was full of people like you, I think we'd be a little bit better off, I'm sure. Uh, that being said, yeah, like Ben said, uh, check us out, and I'd love to get your a sense of our uh, how bad we demagogue, because that would be fun. We'll have you back on and talk about it, all right? Sounds good to me, guys. Thank all you, right. Richard. Thank you, Richard. God bless. Thank you. Go forward. We're going to come right back. Do sex. <laughs> Young Turks. This is Jank Uger from the Young Turks. The Best of the Left podcast is awesome. After listening to these clips, go to our website at theyoungturks.com. Since the cable networks refuse to put a liberal talk show on the air, we put one on the Internet. You can watch the Young Turks live every day from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And please support the show by becoming a member or purchasing Young Turks merchandise. All at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I I talked just ever so briefly yesterday about uh, changes in the wind coming for the show. And uh, so I'll I'll talk now about what that actually meant. Uh, A few days ago, you may have heard me talk briefly, uh, or or not so briefly, maybe, about uh, my fundraising goals. I was reminded to talk about 
the fact that I have uh, donation links on the website, and that I've actually set a fundraising goal, which I thought was a very reasonable and achievable uh, amount of $100,000 to be raised from all of my listeners, uh, whether to be donated in $1,000 chunks from 100 people or $100 sums from 1,000 makes no difference uh, as, as long as it averages out. I, it's something to the effect of what I said. Uh, the idea came about in reference to the way Pat Robertson started his 700 club and the way he raised $700,000 using that same basic math. Well, I believe that uh, nearly all of you, and nearly is the operative word, nearly all of you understood that uh, that entire discussion was laced beginning to end with uh, sarcasm and was meant to be ridiculous and absurd to the point of humor. That was the idea, anyways. Well, unfortunately, one poor misguided soul apparently did not understand the, the humor involved. And only about four hours after that show was posted and available to download, I received a single donation of a sum that I believe is higher than my entire investment, my entire personal investment in the show up to this point. You know, we're talking three-digit number that doesn't start with a one. A substantial donation. And I, I did, I immediately contacted this person and uh, expressed my uh, sorrow that this person didn't uh, quite grasp the concept of sarcasm, and uh, so there, there was just a, a brief back and forth. Apparently, he actually meant to give the money. I, I was baffled, but there it is. And so what this has done has created a change in my perception of the possibilities for the future of the show. The, the unfortunate part uh, for you, is that from now on, when I speak about money and fundraising, it will no longer be in the vein of humor and sarcasm and absurdity, as I always thought it was up to this point. Now I see that there really is possibility to raise possibly not $100,000, but for the, the listeners of the show to be very instrumental in the progress and the growth of the show, as, uh, as I explained in that, in that previous discussion, you get to a point where possibly word of mouth isn't enough, or it doesn't go fast enough, or maybe I'm just impatient and would like to see the show grow faster and stronger um, as quickly as possible because there's a 
point to the show. I'm trying to actually do something with it. It's not so much a selfish venture as a a public service as ha, has been as it has been called by many others and that is how I think of it myself. So in the future by which I mean like tomorrow and and the very near future I will begin the process of monetizing the show in a variety of different ways. Uh, some of these ways are already in place, and you may not even realize it. But uh, I'm I'm really going to try to kick that up to it to the next level. And one of the integral ways of doing that is to uh, consistently and irritatingly ask for money from the listeners. Uh, the reason being, there are always new listeners coming in. Uh, there are listeners who haven't haven't been here long enough to, you know, realize that they would be willing to give money, or you just forget. And the more you get reminded, the more you think of it. And so it's it's very irritating. But there's a long history of that strategy actually working, for, you know hosts of particular television shows, I won't name any names, uh, of, of raising money and becoming successful because of that. But now that you have that kind of bad taste in your mouth, I just would like to clarify one of the finer points of raising money uh, for a show such as mine, as opposed to a show such as that other one that I was talking about before, I see raising money for my show similar to the way the revolutionaries raised and borrowed money to fund the revolution, say. And not so much like the way... Yeah, it's Pat Robertson. The way Pat Robertson asks for money from stupid people who think that he can cure them of cancer through the television and then when he takes their money and says that he's going to use it to feed poor people uh, by airlifting them food he then turns around and uses those planes that he bought with the money to transport uh, equipment and supplies to run his diamond mines that are being manned by the indigenous people who work for slave wages. Now, it's, it's a fine line to, to really parse those two analogies, but I think, just mull it over for a minute, I think you will get it. Uh, it it's, not, it's not terribly difficult, it's just wrap your mind around it for a minute and realize that, you know, donating your, you know, time, effort, um, possibly in, in the future, uh, your talents, and of course, simply money to the best of the left is, uh, is a more, I would say, noble cause than, say, to televangelists. It's, it's a point of pride for me. And 
I, I will say now to dissuade any fears, and I will continue to say, the money that comes in to be donated to the show, I really do consider it to be the show's money. At this point in my life, for the time being, I don't need a, a supplemental income for myself. When you donate to the show, you're not donating to me so that I can go uh, out to dinner. And I, I know, I mean, I've gotten notes from people who, you know, they donate to the show and they really do want to donate to me. And that's fine, but that's not the point of what I'm asking for. I, I really am asking uh, for any help along the way uh, in, in any of the, the different ways that will be coming up in the future to help raise money that will fund uh, advertising for the show, uh, raising the awareness and the popularity of the program. And, uh, and then also what I, I really should mention is that the progressive podcast network found at newmediarevolution.org is in the midst of building a new website. And so money that I make in, in whatever way I make it, I'm sure I will be committing much of that to the group effort of building that website to promote not only myself, but the rest of the group. So that's what I'll say for now. That's the big change. Uh, I want to leave you today with a song that was uh, given to me by a, uh, a great fan. He's been listening for a long time. It's Spike. Uh, he runs his own podcast, uh, Spike and Rachel. And you can search for it, uh, Google it, iTunes, all those things. Uh, Spike and Rachel. And Rachel is spelled phonetically R-A-Y-C-H-U-L. And he sent me this song, and I fell in love with it. I want to leave it with, with you as uh, the last thing you hear from me uh, live, or relatively live, uh, until the end of my vacation. So that's going to be it for, for me for, uh, for a while. Have a good one, everybody. You're wrong about virtues of Christianity. And you're wrong if you agree with Sean Hannity. If you think that pride is about nationality, you're wrong. You're wrong when you imprison people turning tricks. And you're wrong about trickle-down economics. If you think that punk rock doesn't mix with politics, you're wrong. You're wrong for hating queers and eating steers. You kill for the thrill of the hunt You're wrong about wearing fur And not hating Aunt Coulter Cause she's a cunted cunt Or you're wrong if you celebrate Columbus Day And you're wrong if you think there'll be a judgment day If you're a charter member of the NRA You're wrong If you support capital punishment And you're wrong If you don't question your government If you think her reproductive rights are inconsequent You're wrong You're wrong Fighting jihad Your blind faith in God Your religions are all flawed You're wrong About drug use When it's not abuse I hope you never reproduce 
You're getting high on the down low A victim of the Cointel Pro You're wrong and we'll probably never know